Chapter 8 of the Book of Buried Treasure. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Buried Treasure by Ralph Delahaye Payne. Chapter 8 The Lost Plate Fleet of Eagle. No treasure yarn is the real thing unless it glitters with ducats, ingots, and pieces of eight which means that in the brave days when riches were quickest won with cutlass, boarding pike, and carronade, it was Spain that furnished the best hunting afloat. For three centuries her galleons and treasure fleets were harried and despoil of wealth that staggers the imagination, and their wreckage littered every ocean. English sea-rovers captured many millions of gold and silver, and pirates took their fat shares in the West Indies, along the coasts of America from the Spanish Main to Lima and Panama and across the pacific to manila and to-day the quests of the treasure-seekers are mostly inspired by hopes of finding some of the vanished wealth of spain that was hidden or sunk in the age of the conquistadors and the viceroys of all the argosies of spain the richest were those plate fleets which each year carried to cadiz and seville the cargoes of bullion from the mines of peru and mexico and the greatest treasure ever lost since the world began was that which filled the holds of the fleet of galleons that sailed from Cartagena, Portobello, and Veracruz in the year 1702. What distinguishes this treasure story from all others is that it is not befogged in legend and confused by mystery and uncertainty. And while ships' companies are roaming the seven seas to find what small pickings the pirates and buccaneers may have lifted in their time, the most marvelous Spanish treasure of them all is no farther away than a harbor on the other side of the Atlantic. At the bottom of Vigo Bay, on the coast of Spain, lies that fleet of galleons and one hundred millions of dollars in gold ingots and silver bars. This estimate is smaller than documentary evidence vouches for. In fact, twenty-eight million pounds sterling is the accepted amount, but one hundred million dollars has a sufficiently large and impressive sound, and it is wise to be conservative to the verge of caution in dealing with lost treasure, which has been made so much more the theme of fiction than a question of veracity. After escaping the perils of buccaneer and privateer and frigate, this treasure fleet went down in a home port, mid smoke and flame and the thunder of guns manned by English and Dutch tars under that doughty admiral of Queen Anne, Sir George Rook. It was the deadliest blow ever dealt the mighty commerce of Spain during those centuries when her ruthless grasp was squeezing the new world of its riches. There, indeed, is the prize for the treasure-seeker of today who dreams of doubloons and pieces of eight. Nor could Pirate Horde have a more blood-stained adventurous history than these millions upon millions, lapped by the tides of Eagle Bay, which were won by the sword and lost in battle. During these last two hundred years many efforts have been made to recover the freightage of this fleet, but the bulk of the treasure is still untouched, and it awaits the man with the cash and the ingenuity to evolve the right salvage equipment. At work now in Vigo Bay is the latest of these explorers, an Italian, Pino by name, inventor of a submarine boat, a system of raising wreck, and a wonderful machine called a hydroscope for seeing and working at the bottom of the sea. With Pino, it is a business affair operated by means of a concession from the Spanish government. But he is something more than an inventor. He is a poet. He has the artistic temperament. And when he talks of his plans, it is in words like these. I have found means to disclose to human eyes the things hidden in the being of the furious waves of the infinite ocean, and how to recover them. Mine is the simple key with which to open to man the mysterious virgin temples of the nymphs and sirens, 
who by their sweet singing draw men to see and to take their endless treasures. This interesting Pino is no dreamer, however, and he has enlisted ample capital with which to build costly machinery and charter yachts and steamers. With him is associated Carlo L. Iberti, and there is an ideal pattern of a treasure seeker for you, a man of immense enthusiasm, of indefatigable industry, dreaming, thinking, living in the story of the galleons of Eagle Bay. It was he who secured the concession from Madrid. It was he who, as he says, was flying from province to province, from country to country, from archives to archives, from library to library, ever studying, copying, and acquiring all documents relating to Vigo. I had made up my mind to find out all that was to be known about the treasure, and I believe I have succeeded. Never was there such a prospectus, as Iberti wrote, to awaken the interest of investors in the undertaking of Pino. It was a historical work, bristling with data, authorities, references, from French, Spanish, and English sources. It was convincing, final, positively superb. One blinked at reading it, as if dazzled by the sight of mountains of gold, and moreover every word of it was true. As a text for this narrative, his summary, peroration, so to speak, fairly hits one between the eyes. As the total quantity of treasure which arrived at Vigo in 1702 amounted to 126,470,600 pesos, or 27,493,609 pounds, there is not the least doubt that the treasure in gold and silver still lying in the galleons of Vigo Bay amounts to as much as 113,396,085 pieces of eight, or 24,651,323 pounds. After deducting the treasure, unloaded before the battle, the booty taken by the victors, and that recovered by explorers, that would have been the value of the treasure 200 years ago. Today its value would be greater at a moderate estimate of 28 million pounds. Such is the sum which we who are interested in the recovery of the treasure have set our hearts on winning from the sea. After this the hordes of the most notorious and hard-working pirates seem picayune, trifling, shabby, small change of the age of buried treasure. Why Signora Berti is so cocksure of his figures, and how that wondrous treasure fleet was lost in Vigo Bay is a story worth telling, if there be any merit in high adventures, hard fighting, and the tang of salty seas in the days when the world was young. No more than nine years after the first voyage of Columbus, galleons laden with treasure were winging it from the West Indies to Spain, and this golden stream was flowing year by year until the time of the American Revolution. The total was to be counted not in millions, but in billions, and this prodigious looting of the New World gave to Spain such wealth and power that her centuries of greatness were literally builded upon foundations of ingots and silver bars. Before Sir Francis Drake sailed into the Caribbean, the Dutch and English had been playing at the great game of galleon hunting, but their exploits had been no more than vexations, and the security of the plate fleets was not seriously menaced until El Drake spread terror and destruction down one coast of the Americas and up the other, from Nombre de Dios to Panama. Heaven alone knows how many great galleons he shattered and plundered, but from the San Felipe and the Cacafuego he took two million dollars in treasure, and he numbered his other prizes by the score. Martin Frobisher carried the huge East India galleon, Madre de Dios, by boarding in the face of tremendous odds, the blood running from her scuppers, and was rewarded with $1,250,000 worth of precious stones, ebony ivory, and Turkish carpets. During the period of the English Commonwealth, Admiral Stainer pounded to pieces a West Indian treasure fleet of eight sail, and from one of them took two millions in silver. 
while blake fought his way into the harbor of teneriffe and destroyed another splendid argosy under the guns of the forts it is recorded that thirty-eight wagons were required to carry the gold and jewels thus obtained from portsmouth to london the records of the british admiralty have preserved a memorandum of the prize money distributed to the officers and men of the active and favorite from the treasures taken in the Hermione galleon off cadiz in seventeen sixty two and it is a document to make a modern mariner sigh for the days of his forefathers here is a treasure finding as it used to flourish the admiral and the commander of the fleet three hundred twenty four thousand eight hundred fifteen dollars the captain of the active three hundred thirty two thousand two hundred sixty five each of three commissioned officers sixty five thousand each of eight warrant officers twenty one thousand six hundred each of twenty officers nine thousand thirty each of a hundred fifty seamen and marines two thousand four hundred twenty five the captain of the favorite three hundred twenty four thousand three hundred sixty each of two commissioned officers sixty four thousand eight hundred seventy each of seventy seven warrant officers thirty thousand two hundred sixty eight each of fifteen petty officers nine thousand each of one hundred seamen and marines two thousand four hundred twenty in seventeen o two it happened that no treasure fleet had returned to spain for three years and the gold and silver and costly merchandise were piling up at cartagena and portobello and veracruz waiting for shipment spain was torn with strife over the royal succession and inasmuch as the king claimed as his own one-fifth of all the treasure coming from the new world the west india company and the officials of the treasury kept the galleons away until it should be known who had the better right to the cargoes moreover the high seas were perilous for the passage of treasure ships but with the havoc wrought by the cursed english men-of-war and privateers not to mention the buccaneers of san domingo and the windward islands who had a trick of storming aboard a galleon from any crazy little craft that would float a handful of them timidly the galleons delayed until a fleet of french men-of-war was sent out to convey them home and at length this richest argosy that ever furled blue water freighted with three years treasure from the mines made its leisurely way into mid-ocean by way of the azores bound to the home port of cadiz there were forty sail in all seventeen of the plate fleet under don manuel de velasco and twenty-three french ships of the line and frigates obeying the admiral's pennant of the count of chateau renaud news came to queen anne that this fleet had departed from the spanish main and a squadron of twenty-seven british war vessels commanded by the famous sir cloudsley shovel was fitted out to intercept and attack it the maneuvers of the hunted galleons and their convoy wear an aspect grimly humorous as pictured in the letters and narratives of that time one of these explains that the fleet was performing its voyage always with the fear that the enemy was lying in wait for it the king of france also was in continual anxiety on the same account and urged by these forebodings he sent dispatches in different vessels so that the fleet might avoid the threatened danger one of the dispatch boats met it on the open sea and gave it notice of the enemy's armada being over against cadiz upon which warning the commander called a council of war in the ship capitana to consider and fix upon the port which they ought to make for at this meeting various views were expressed for the french held that the fleet would be more secure in the ports of france and especially in that of rochelle of the same opinion were many of the spaniards who were looking not to the interests of individuals but to the public good and yet there were also seen the ill consequences that might arise from the treasure not being conveyed to its proper destination and the possibility of the most christian kings finding some pretext which would endanger its safety 
which is to say that if his most christian majesty louis the fourteenth of france who was safeguarding the treasure should once entice it into one of his own ports he was likely to keep it there and so the courteous spanish captains and equally polite french captains eyed one another suspiciously in the cabin of the galleon and held counsel until it was decided to seek refuge in vigo bay on the coast of galicia thereby both dodging the english and remaining at sufficient distance from france to spoil any designs which might be prompted by the greed of his most christian majesty without mishap the treasure fleet and the convoy anchored in the sheltered narrow stretch of vigo harbor and preparations for standing off an english attack were begun at once the forts were manned the militia called out and a great chain boom stretched across the entrance of the inner roadstead this was all very well in its way but so incredible a comedy of blundering stupid delay ensued that although for one whole month the galleon lay unmolested the treasure was not unloaded and carried to safety ashore in a letter from brussels printed in the london postman of november tenth seventeen o two the grave results of this spanish procrastination were indicated in these words the last advices from spain and paris have caused great consternation here the treasure and other goods brought by the said fleet are of such consequence to spain and in particular to this province that most of our traders are ruined if this fleet is taken and destroyed while the english and their allies the dutch were making ready to take this treasure fleet bottled up in vigo bay the officials of spain were so entangled in red tape that there seemed to be no way of unloading the galleons a spanish writer of that era thus describes the lamentable state of affairs the commerce of cadiz maintained that nothing could be dismarked in galicia that to unload the fleet was their privilege and that the ships ought to be kept safe in the harbor of vigo without discharging their cargoes till the enemies were gone away in addition to this the settlement of the matter in the council of the indies was not so speedy as the emergency demanded both through the slowness and prudence natural to the spaniard and through the diversity of opinions on the subject don modesto la fuento a later spanish historian gravely explains that as the arrival of the fleet at this port was unexpected and contrary to the usual custom there was no officer to be found who could examine merchandise for the payment of duties without which no disembarkation could be lawfully made when notice of this was at length sent to the court much discussion arose there as to who should be sent they fixed upon don juan de la herrera but this counsellor was in no hurry about setting out on his journey and spent a long time in making it and when he arrived he occupied himself with discussion about the disposition of the goods that had come into the fleet this gave the opportunity for the anglo-dutch fleet which had notice of everything to set out and arrive in the waters of vigo before the disembarkation was effected surely never was so much treasure so foolishly endangered and although a small part of it was taken ashore notwithstanding the asinine proceedings of the government in don juan de la ria the english post newspaper of november second asserted that the spaniards being informed that the enemy's fleet was returned home sent aboard a great quantity of their plate which they had carried to land for fear of them admiral sir cloudesley's shovel missed finding the treasure fleet at sea but a lucky chance favored another sterling english commander sir george rook he was homeward bound from a disastrous attempt to take cadiz in which affair the duke of ormond had led the troops engaged one of his ships pembroke was detached from the fleet and while calling at lagos bay for water the chaplain became friendly with the gentleman of the port who passed him word that the galleons and the french fleet were safe at vigo this talkative informant proved to be a messenger from lisbon sent by the german minister with dispatches for the treasure fleet which he had first sought in vain at cadiz the chaplain carried the rare tidings to captain hardy of the pembroke who instantly made sail to find sir george rook in the english fleet which was jogging along toward england the admiral was extreme glad says an old account and 
imparted the same immediately to the Dutch admiral, declaring it his opinion that they should go directly to Vigo. The Dutchman and his tars joyfully agreed, and Dalrymple, in his memoirs, relates that, at the sound of treasure from the South Seas, dejection and animosity ceased, and those who a few days before would not speak when they met, now embraced and felicitated each other, etc. All the difficulties that had appeared to be mountainous at Cadiz dwindled into molehills at Vigo. The gunners agreed that the bombs would reach the town and the shipping, the engineers that lodgments and works could easily be made, the soldiers that there was no danger in landing, the seamen that the passage of the narrows could easily be forced, notwithstanding all the defenses and obstructions, and the pilots that the depth of water was everywhere sufficient and the anchors safe. Brooks gout incommoded him no longer. He went from ship to ship, even in the night time, and became civil, and the Duke of Ormond with his father's generosity his brothers and his own forgot all that was past these were the sentiments of men who had no more rations left aboard ship than two biscuits per day whose fleet was leaky battered and unseaworthy after the hard fighting at cadiz and who were going to attack a powerful array of french vessels protected by numerous forts and obstructions and supported by the seventeen galleons which in armament and crews were as formidable as men of war at a council of flag officers called by sir george rook it was resolved that considering the attempting and destroying these ships would be of the greatest advantage and honour to her majesty and her allies and very much tend to the reducing of the power of france the fleet should make the best of its way to the port of vigo and insult them immediately with the whole line in case there was room enough for it and if not by such detachment as might render the attack most effective in naval history no swifter and more deadly insult was ever administered than that which befell when sir george rook his gout forgotten appeared before vigo and lost no time in coming to close quarters he called a council of the general land and sea officers who concluded that in regard the whole fleet could not without being in danger of being in a huddle attempt the ships and galleons where they were detachment of fifteen english and ten dutch ships of the line of battle with all the fire ships should be sent to use their best endeavours to take or destroy the aforesaid ships of the enemy and the frigates and bomb vessels should follow the rear of the fleet and the great ships move after them to go in there should be occasion next morning the duke of ormond landed two thousand british infantry to take the forts and destroy the landward end of the boom made of chain cables and spars which blocked the channel these errands were accomplished with so much spirit and determination that the grenadiers fairly chased the spanish garrisons out of their works rook did not wait for the finish of his task but flew the signal to get under way vice-admiral hobson leading in the torbay british and dutch together the wind blowing half a gale behind them surged toward the inner harbor topped not for the boom but cut away through it and became engaged with the french men-of-war at close range the hostile fleets were so jammed together that it was not a battle of broadsides a spanish chronicler related that they fought with fires of inhuman contrivance hand grenades fireballs and lumps of burning pitch within one half hour after the english and dutch had gained entrance to the bay its surface was an inferno of blazing galleons and men-of-war some of the french ships were carried with the cutlass and boarding pike but fire was the chief weapon used by both sides the flaming vessels drifted against each other some of them sent purposely alight and filled with explosives when the galleons tried to move further up the bay british troops on shore raked them with musketry and prevented the attempts to put some of the treasure on land the lofty treasure ships their huge citadels rising fore and aft and gay with carving and gilt burned like so much tinder 
The English had no desire to destroy these golden prizes, and as soon as the French fleet had been annihilated, every ship burned, sunk, captured, or driven ashore, heroic efforts were made to save the galleons still unharmed, whereupon Don Manuel de Velasco, who was not wanting in courage, but only in good fortune, ordered them to be set on fire. The enemy saw the greater part of the treasure sunk in the sea, many perished seeking for riches in the middle of the flames. These, with those who fell in the battle, were eight hundred English and Dutch, five hundred were wounded, and one English three-decker was burnt. Nevertheless, they took thirteen French and Spanish ships, seven of which were men-of-war, and six merchantmen, besides some others much damaged and half-burnt. There fell two thousand Spaniards and French, few escaped and wounded. The day after the bloody battle, they sent down into the water a great many divers, but with little result, for the artillery of the city hindered them. So setting to work to embark their people, and covering their masts with flags and streamers, they celebrated their victory with flutes and fifes. Thus they steered for their own ports, leaving that country full of sadness and terror. It was a prodigiously destructive naval engagement, the costliest in point of material losses that history records. Victors got much booty to take home to England and the Netherlands, and were handsomely rewarded for their pains. Sir George Rook carried to London the galleon Toro, which had escaped burning, and she had a mighty freight of bullion in her hold. Of this ship, the post-boy newspaper made mention January 19, 1703. There was found in the galleon unloaded last week abundance of wrought plate, pieces of eight, and other valuable commodities, and so much that tis computed the whole cargo is worth 200,000 pounds. All records of that time and event agree, however, that the treasure saved by the Allied fleet was no more than a small part of what was lost by the wholesale destruction of the galleons, and chiefly interesting to the present day are the most reliable estimates of the amount of gold and silver that still rests embedded in the tidal silt of Eagle Bay. There were sunk in water too deep to be explored by the engineers of that century, eleven French men-of-war, and at least a round dozen of treasure-laden galleons. The French fleet carried no small amount of gold and silver which had been entrusted to the admiral and his officers by merchants of the West Indies. As for the galleons, the English post of November 13, 1702 stated, Three Spanish officers belonging to the galleons, one of them who was the admiral of the Asanga ships, are brought over, who report that the effects that were on board amounted to nine million sterling, that the Spaniards, for want of mules to carry the plate into the country, had broke the bulk of very few ships before the English forced the boom. The amount of the treasure is greatly underestimated in the foregoing assertion, for the annual voyage of the plate fleet had carried to Spain an average lading worth from thirty to forty million dollars, and this doomed flota bore the accumulated treasure of three years. Not more than ten million dollars in bullion and merchandise could have been looted by the Dutch and English victors, according to the most reliable official records. Our enthusiastic friends, Senor Don Carlos Aberti, he whom had been flying from province to province, in behalf of the latest treasure company of Eagle Bay, dug deep into the musty records of account books of the Ministry of Finance, of the colonies, of the Royal Treasury, of the Comercio of Cadiz, of the Council of the West Indies, and so on, and can tell you to the last peso how much gold and silver was sent from the mines in America in the treasure fleets, and precisely the value of the shipments entrusted to the magnificent flota of 1702. A score of English authorities might be quoted to confirm what has been said of the vastness of this lost treasure, the event was the sensation of the time in Europe, and many pens were busy chronicling in diverse tongues the details of the catastrophe and the results thereof. In a letter from Madrid, which reached England a few days after the event, the writer lamented, 
Yesterday, an express arrived from Vigo with the melancholy news that the English and Dutch fleets came before that place the 22nd past, and having made themselves masters of the mouth of the river, in less than two hours took and burnt all the French men-of-war and galleons in the harbor. We have much greater reason to deplore our misfortune in silence and tears than to give you a particular account of this unspeakable loss, which will hasten the utter ruin of this our monarchy." the inhabitants of this place not being able to recollect themselves from their consternation have shut up their houses and shops for fear of being plundered by the common people who exclaim publicly against the government and particularly against cardinal porto carrero and others of the council who not being content with the free gift of three millions offered to the king out of the galleons besides an indulto of two millions hindered the landing of the plate at vigo before the enemy arrived there but the cardinal laid the blame on the consultant of seville who mistrusting the french would not suffer them to carry the galleons to brest or poor louis but gave orders that they should sail back from vigo to cadiz after the english and dutch fleets were returned home tis said that only three of the galleons put their cargo ashore before the arrival of the enemy the news was a most bitter pill for his christian majesty louis the fourteenth of france and put him and his court into a mighty consternation he was quoted as saying that there was not one-tenth part of the plate and merchandise landed from on board the fleet this is the most facetious piece of news that could come to the enemies of france and spain all the records lay stress on the immense value of the treasure lost one that the spanish galleons were coming from mexico overladen with riches another that vast wealth in gold silver and merchandise was lost in that terrible battle of ego a third that this was the richest flota that ever came into europe it is extraordinary that most of the treasure has remained untouched for more than two centuries at the bottom of Vigo Bay. The records of the Spanish government contain almost complete memoranda of every concession granted to searching parties and of the valuables recovered, which total to date is no more than a million and a half of dollars. Soon after the battle, Spain began to fish for her lost galleons, and in that same year of 1702, the official newspaper of Madrid recorded that we are instructed from vigo that they are proceeding with success in the raising of the precious burden belonging to the capitana and almiranta of the flota for some reason or other the task was shortly abandoned and the work turned over to private enterprise and companies which were granted special charters the crown demanding as much as ninety-five per cent of all the treasure recovered during the half-century following the loss of the fleet as many as thirty of these concessions were granted but most of them accomplished nothing the first treasure hunter to achieve results worth mentioning was a frenchman alexander goubert who went to work in seventeen twenty eight and after prodigious exertion succeeded in dragging almost ashore a hulk which turned out to be no galleon but one of the men-of-war of his own country at which there was much merriment in perfidious albion this disgusted m goubert and he was heard of no more an englishman william evans tried a diving bell of his own invention in the same century and raised many plates of silver but a spanish concessionaire jealous of this good fortune persuaded his government that it was in bad taste to let history repeat itself by giving the english another fling at the treasure in eighteen twenty five time having softened these poignant memories a scotchman was permitted to work in the bay and local tradition affirms that he found much gold and silver outwitting the officials at madrid who demanded eighty per cent of his findings the inspectors posted to keep watch of his operations he made comfortably drunk bundled them ashore clapped sail on his brigantine and vanished with his booty later a castle was built near perth in scotland and given the name of dollar house here the scotchman aforesaid lived happily ever afterwards for all that is known to the contrary 
Through the 18th century, French, English, and Spanish exploring parties were intriguing, quarreling, buying one another out, now and then finding some treasure, and locating the positions of most of the galleons. In 1822, American treasure hunters invaded the bay, organized as the International Submarine Company, and hailing from Philadelphia. Nothing worth mention was done until these adventurous gentlemen, after a good deal of bickering, made a fresh start under the name of the Vigo Bay Treasure Company. Their affairs dragged along for a half century or so, during which they lifted one galleon from the bottom, but the weight of the mud in her hull broke her to small bits. A Spanish war vessel watched the operations by night and day, the government being somewhat sensitive and suspicious ever since the flight of that Scotchman and his brigantine. At last the American company was unable to get a renewal of its long-drawn-out concession, and for some time the galleons were left alone. It was in 1904 that Senor Don Carlos Berti obtained the Royal Decree of Concession for the Pino Company Limited of Genoa, and now indeed there was to be treasure-seeking in earnest. Until recently, the search for the treasure in the Bay of Vigo seemed only an utopian mania, cried Berti. Those who set about the arduous enterprise were taken for mad scientists, rascals, or deceivers of innocent speculators. But for my part, I shall always admire those bands of adventurers who sought to recover this treasure from the first day after the battle until the present time. Pino's first invention was a submarine boat, which was tested with brilliant success before putting it into service at Vigo Bay. For the preliminary work of treasure finding, he perfected his hydroscope, a kind of sea telescope consisting of a floating platform from which depend a series of tubes ending in a chamber equipped with electric lamps, lenses, and reflectors, like so many gigantic eyes through which the observer is able to view the illuminated bottom of bay or ocean. To lift the galleons bodily is Pino's plan, and he has devised what he calls elevators, or clusters of great bags of waterproofed canvas, each capable of raising 40 tons in the water when pumped full of air. These are placed in the hull of the sunken ship, or attached outside, and when made buoyant by means of powerful air pumps, exert a lifting force, easily comprehended. In addition, this ingenious Italian engineer, who has made a science of treasure-seeking, makes use of metal arms capable of embracing a rotting, flimsy hull, Huge tongs which are operated by a floating equipment of sufficient engine power to lift whatever it is made fast to. The Japanese government successfully employed his submarine inventions in raising the Russian warships sunk at Port Arthur. Already one of the Spanish galleons has been brought to the surface of Eagle Bay, but she happened to have been laden with costly merchandise instead of plate, and her cargo was long since ruined by water and corrosion. The list of articles recovered during the searches of recent years is a fascinating catalogue to show that the story of the lost fleet is a true romance of history. I quote Aberti, who dwells with so much joyous enthusiasm over the anchors, including that of the Misericordia of Santa Cruz, guns of different caliber, wood of various kinds, thirty-gun carriages, wheels, mortars, silver spoons, mariner's compasses, enormous cables, and numerous balls and bombs, statuettes of inlaid gold, magnificently engraved pipe holders, Mexican porcelain, tortoise, or plates of silver, some weighing as much as eighty pounds, gold pieces stamped by the Royal Mint of Mexico and ingots from Peru. The latest of the concession held by Pino and his company, whose shareholders have invested large sums of real money, is an unusual document, and that bona fide treasure-seeking seems so incongruous in the industry in this twentieth century. It bears the signature of His Excellency Don José Fernández, Minister of the Royal Navy, and was granted on August 24, 1907, to be enforced until 1915. The wording runs thus. With this date, I say to the Director General of the Mercantile Marine as follows. 
most excellent sir having taken into consideration the petition presented by the italian subject don carlos aberti representing cav don jose pino inventor of the hydroscope apparatus for seeing photographing and recovering objects sunk to the bottom of the sea in which petition he explains that he obtained the concession for the term of eight years to exploit what there is in the bay of eagle appertaining to the galleons which came from america which concession was published in the gazeta oficial of the fifth of january nineteen o four that he was at the bay of eagle from the month of april until the end of the said year carrying on dredging operations but unforeseen difficulties prevented them from effecting a real and direct exploitation so that the work accomplished is only preliminary as that of seeing examining and studying the difficulties of the submarine bed and the conditions in which the submerged galleons are that having obtained all these data necessary for undertaking the work for recovery in accord with the commander of the marine at vigo and other gentlemen who constitute the council of inspection they suspended the operations in order to study and construct new apparatus more powerful more adapted to this kind of operation and they returned to italy with the intention of going again to vigo as soon as they had finished the new appliances with which to complete the work of recovery that they have already spent large sums there the greater part of which have gone to benefit the inhabitants of vigo that in the view of all this it has been put forward he prays for an extension on the same terms in which the concession was granted considering that by granting him the solicited extension the state's interest would not be prejudiced on the condition of its receiving twenty per cent of all that is recovered irrespective of the artistic and historic value of the objects recovered his majesty the king in accord with what has been proposed by the council of ministers has deigned to grant the solicited extension on the same conditions which were already put in the concession which are first the concessionaires shall utilize for all manual labor which shall be necessary the small craft of the locality and sailors of the maritime department second the work once commenced shall be carried on without interruption unless there shall be justifiable cause to hinder it third he undertakes to give the state twenty per cent of the value of the objects recovered fourth in fulfillment of what has been established by article three fifty one of the civil code if any objects of interest to science or art or of any historic value shall be extracted they shall be given to the state if it requires and the state will pay the fair price which will be fixed by experts taking into account the expenses of their recovery which by royal decree i have the pleasure to announce to you for your knowledge and satisfaction may god preserve you for many years this long-winded proclamation seems faintly to echo of another and far distant day appertaining to the galleons which came from america that day on which the news of the catastrophe was received in the palace of madrid gabrielle de savoy the child queen then only fourteen years old and wed to philip v heard the tidings of the battle of vigo bay on the day and hour which was fixed upon for her to go in public to give thanks to the virgin of achoa for the triumphs of the king and to place in that temple the banners captured from the enemy in italy this wise lady lamented bitterly such fatal news and not wishing to discourage and afflict her people she put on courage and resolving to go forth presented herself with so serene a countenance as to impose upon all who were astonished at her courage and the ceremony was performed as if nothing had happened vigo to-day is a pretty and thriving town of thirty thousand people with a large trade by sea and fertile fields stretching between bay and mountain round about are the ancient forts and castles which were stormed and battered by the grenadiers of the duke of ormond and the guns of the british and dutch ships under sir george rook vigo won a melancholy renown on that terrific day so long ago and its blue waters have a haunting interest even now recalling the glory of the age of the galleons and the wild romance of their voyaging from the spanish main 
Perhaps the ingenious Don Jose Pino, with his modern machinery, may find the greatest treasure ever lost, certain as he is, that, in dim green depths, right ingot-laden ships with gold doubloons that from the drowned hand fell. At any rate, there is a treasure trove in the very story of that fight in Vigo Bay, in the contrast between the timid, blundering, procrastinating Spanish, afraid to leave their gold and silver in the galleons, yet afraid to unload it, any instant decision of the english admiral who cared not a rap for the odds his business was to smash the french fleet and destroy the plate ships and he went about it like the ready indomitable sea-dog that he was among the english state papers is the manuscript logbook of the captain of the torbay flagship of the vice-admiral hobson who led the attack this is how a fighting seaman of the old school disposed of so momentous and severe a naval action as that of vigo bay as if it were no more than a commonplace item in the day's work this twenty-four hours little wind the latter part much rain and dirty weather yesterday about three in the afternoon we anchored before vigo town in fifteen fathoms water this morning vice admiral hobson hoisted the red flag at our fore topmast head in order to go ahead of the fleet to defeat the french and spanish galleons which lay up the river about noon we weighed having sent our soldiers on there to engage the forts which opposed our coming we being come near the forts fired at us about one o'clock coming across the forts which were on each side of the harbor they fired smartly at us and we fired our guns at both sides of them again and went past and broke the boom which crossed the river to hinder our passage so that four or five men of war engaged us at once but soon deserted firing and burnt their ships they sent a fire ship which set us on fire it was a very simple business to hear the captain of the torbay tell it but the golden empire of spain was shaken from cadiz to panama and gaudy dauntless sir george rook helped mightily to hasten the end which was finally brought about by another admiral george dewey by name in that manila bay whence the treasure galleons of the east indies flota had crossed the pacific to add their wealth to the glittering cargoes gathered by the viceroys of mexico and peru End of chapter eight